All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Actual Anarchy Podcast, where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian and anarcho-capitalist perspective. And I'm singing for episode 115 of the show. We're going to do Les Miserables, the 2012 version starring Hugh Jackman and Russell Crowe, among others. We have a special guest who we will introduce on the Last Nighters portion of the show. But let's say hello to Robert. Can you can you come into this with some song for me? Well, hello, everybody. I really didn't like this movie. It would have been a half an hour shorter had they not all been singing. And I think the That's same way. It's, it's fine. It's just, it wasn't for me. That's all I'm saying. Well, I think we're going to have a lot to talk about, though, because there's a lot of uh, character development and history around this thing and uh, a pretty decent story. There's a lot of situations that will be nice and uh, chewy, meaty morsels to digestify here on the show. But let's do that on the last nighters portion. We will introduce our guest, Alex, and um, I will also have some special messages for everyone when we kick this thing off. So let's get into that last nighters portion of the show, shall we? Hey everyone, it's Daniel and Robert, The Last Nighters, and we might sing a little on this one. We're going to do Les Miserables with a special guest. This is episode 58 of the show, and you can find the show notes and more at lastnighter.com slash 58. You can also find the show on thelaunchpadmedia.com, where they're always launching new ideas in your direction. We are a member of the Launchpad Media, and there are plenty of other shows worth checking out, so I do highly recommend them. Now, uh, before I kick this thing off, I did want to mention that one of our friends of the show, he is one of our Patreon supporters. Uh, he is dealing with a medical condition. He has been diagnosed with cancer. So there is a GoFundMe set up. And uh, if you guys are so inclined, uh, our listeners, and you want to support a fellow listener, uh, there will be a link on our show notes page. And there's also a, um, a quick link to get to it. You can go to lastnighter.com slash Joe, J-O-E. And that will go to his GoFundMe and uh, anything uh, that you can offer uh, will help or even just, you know, positive vibes or, or whatever you got. So I just want to throw that out there. Uh, let's say hello to Robert and then we'll introduce our guest, Alex, before we get into Les Miserables. Hey, everybody. Glad to be back. Glad to be here on this chilly winter day. Indeed. It's about to get a heck of a lot colder and snowier where we are. So that should be a lot of fun. And our guest is Alex. And you are a listener of the Launchpad Media. I think you had told us in the pre-show that that's where you discovered us. And you have since listened to every one of our shows except, well, maybe not everyone, but all but one. And uh, so you approached us and said, I really think you guys should do Les Miserables. And I said, all right, you want to come on for it. And here we are. <laughs> well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, we, we are definitely looking forward to this. 
And um, what we usually do is start off with the Google description, as you know, and I will uh, uh, ask you why. Well, before we do that, yeah, what, what made you think, hey, this is a show that you guys should do? Sure. So um, I think a lot of the character development, specifically with uh, Jean Valjean, is the main character. Um, he deals with a lot of issues that uh, I can relate to current times, um, be it criminal justice, the legal system, um, being trapped in the criminal justice system, uh, his personal struggle against uh, against the law, sort of some, some concepts of legality versus morality, I find very interesting um, and worth discussing from perspective that you guys adopt on this show all right very good well i i agree i think there's a lot to go over on this so let's get into that google description les miserables this is the 2012 version it's a drama slash romance slash musical two hours and 40 minutes and um i think robert would agree with me that it could have been probably 40 minutes shorter had they sung just a hair faster or didn't sing every line uh the imdb gave it a 7.6 out of 10 rotten tomatoes 69 percent 63% on the Metacritic and 91% of the Google users like it. Here's the description. After 19 years as a prisoner, Jean Valjean, played by Hugh Jackman, is freed by Javert, played by Russell Crowe, the officer in charge of the prison workforce. Valjean promptly breaks parole, but later uses money from stolen silver to reinvent himself as a mayor and factory owner. Javert vows to bring, vows to bring Valjean back to prison. Eight years later, Valjean becomes the guardian of a child named Cosette after her mother's death and she was played by Anne Hathaway. Uh, but Javert's relentless pursuit means that peace will be a long time coming. This came out on Christmas 2012, which I think was right around the end of the world um, to all the uh, 2012 people out there who thought that the, I think it was the Mayan calendar or Aztec calendar meant we were all going to die. Uh, the director was Tom Hooper. This is the second movie we have done by him. We did the King's Speech a few months back. Uh, we will have that listed on the show notes page as well. The box office was $441.8 million. It's won a couple of Academy Awards, uh, Best Sound Mixing, and I believe the uh, Anne Hathaway performance got a supporting actress nod. So that is the description. Robert, what say you, sir? Well, first of all, I want to preface all my comments. I am generally not the biggest musical guy, but I can watch a Disney movie. And I don't know if you're going to call a Disney movie, you know, a musical. But I watch, I've seen musicals. And usually there's some dialogue and some plot development, and then they go into a song. And the song is usually like this well-crafted piece that advances the plot along. And then there's this movie. And this movie, there isn't like a well-crafted song because it's all singing, all, and no dancing. It's just all singing and misery and sadness, which is, you know, fine. It's an interesting take. I've I've been a familiar with this film. It's been done and redone many times. And I guess it's also like a Broadway play, I suppose. It's been running forever. And it probably fits the stage a little bit better. But still, uh, man, it, I struggled. I struggled with this one. Um, I had to turn the, the subtitles on because I didn't know what they were saying half the time. And they're singing in English. But, you know, it's all right. It just it wasn't a movie for me. Although there are interesting things to discuss. That's for sure. But I, I wouldn't say that I liked the film. All right. Very good. So you're tipping your hand a little bit on the overall uh, rating here. But I would agree there are lots of things to talk about. Like the example being straight off the bat is the disproportionate level of justice uh, that was meted out against Valjean for stealing bread for his hungry relative. Now, that tugs at the heartstrings, of course, and he got five years of hard labor prison uh, as a result of that. And then because of that injustice being carried out against him, he tried to escape. And that just tacked on more time to his sentence. And, yeah, I and 
Well, that led to my one of my big complaints about this film. Um, I, I'm not sure what the movie is trying to be or what the story is trying to be. If it's Jean Valjean just escaping this persecution or if it's a redemption arc, because it seems to be it's trying to be a redemption arc. And that only makes sense if he believes that he is a terrible person and what he did was really terrible. Like he's trying to redeem himself for these horrible acts. And so he takes on this, you know, starving child and he's going to raise it to be a good and he's going to be a great parent and all this. But because there's several times during the movie where Gladiator's about to like capture him and he's like, wait, don't capture me just yet. I got this thing I got to do. Just one more thing and then you can take me in because I totally deserve it. I promised I'll come in. I'm coming in. Just just give me a minute. And then and Russell Crowe's like, nah, I heard that one before like a million times, bro. I'm not I'm not falling for it. All right. Can, can I sidestep us for just a moment? You can sidestep. That's what we do. All right. So not to throw you <laughs> off, but um, there was a, a funny story about somebody um, was being looked for by the police. And on Facebook, they had a conversation with the police department. And I'll try to find it and put it on the show notes page. But they were going back and forth about how, oh, yeah, um, I'll, I'll turn myself in next Tuesday. And the police were like, all right, we'll be waiting for you. And then next Tuesday comes and the police are like, hey, buddy, you never showed up. What's going on? And it goes on for like a couple of weeks. And it's like freaking hilarious. So anyway. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Remind me of that. But but continue, Robert. And then we'll go to mm -hmm. Alex, who I think will be able to fill in some of this. Because sure. uh, when, when he suggested the movie, I was like, which one? Because there's like five different versions of this. And he said, well, you know, kind of pick one. And I did. Uh, but I think the other one of the other ones, at least, gives us a little bit more of him being um, darker starting out and then more turnable. But yeah. I, I mean, this is basically the world's most amazing cop right because he's like going after this parole violator which is like if you know if someone violates parole for whatever who cares but so i i'm totally on board with john valjean in saying whatever he can to the super cop to leave him alone or to get out of it i don't care if he's lying to the guy it's it's an unjust thing right i mean unless you actually believe that he deserves what he got i i don't care so anyway I don't know where we want to go, but I want to I want to hear from our guests here and just break in and talk about whatever, whatever you got. Well, sure, sure. The first uh, the first thing I guess I'd have to say that um, the Google description I thought was was fairly decent. I mean, cut and dry. They describe the events that happened. The one thing, though, that caught me was that they said that Valjean was freed by Javert which is an interesting concept um, that someone who's holding you captive releases you that's not really freeing you. They're stopping enslaving you. So I think that's a very small um, element of our language that you find currently um, in places um, like the Bill of Rights gives you rights, things like that. It, the Bill of Rights doesn't give you those rights. It protects you from them. So to me, that that one line kind of alarmed me a little bit. Um, Javert frees Jean Valjean. Um, so I guess that'd be the only complaint I would have with the Google description on that. Um, as far as the whole the, the song's not moving the plot forward. Um, I'm very familiar with the story. I've seen it uh, on stage several times. Uh, this is the only film version I've seen of it. Um, so I'm, I'm familiar with the story enough to where maybe a new viewer wouldn't, uh, wouldn't see the songs as moving it forward. But uh, there was several scenes to me that, that were pretty powerful um, in developing the plot. Uh, starting with the first one, um, I thought that uh, the scene was just 
awe-inspiring. You see this huge mass of human beings that are all working together under the whip of the state, basically, um, to perform a, a needed task. Um, and they're singing about, uh, you know, how they, they don't deserve to be there. Um, they're unjustly enslaved. You know, they're unjustly imprisoned. And I, I believe that that's probably generally true if you look at real morality. Um, you know, the state has so many functions that it has to get done. Um, and without legal slavery, you turn to uh, to imprisonment. And then it's it's easy to justify using prisoners for labor because they're criminals. They're hardened criminals that, you know, they have to atone for their, their sins. Um, so that, that scene to me was kind of set up a big stage. Um, some of the language from the other prisoners, um, aside from Jean Valjean, I think laid out uh, a pretty compelling situation. Um, another one, one of my favorite scenes was uh, when he's at the, the bishops right after he'd been saved. You know, he, he's laying in front of the altar, um, kind of going through this battle with, uh, with God and deciding what is morality. Um, you know, who do I owe apologies to? Um, and I think, uh, you know, your point, Robert, about uh, him trying to redeem himself, does he believe he's a bad person? I, I would disagree with that a little bit. To me, the story is a man trying to be a good man, despite the state's assessment of him, despite the crime that he committed, that he doesn't believe that actually has an effect on him. And the only practical way of him avoiding that punishment is by fleeing the law. But in doing so, everywhere he goes, he sets up, he improves the lives of everyone he runs across. Um, so to me, there's there's some pretty powerful moments in uh, in the music, and I, I can get past the musical aspect of it. I understand some people don't don't like musicals. My, myself, um, I grew up with uh, with some theater, so I have a I guess a predisposition to that. Well, you're absolutely right that Valjean improves the lives of everybody he runs across. He starts well after you know he steals the candlesticks and then he's given them by the priest or whatever. But then after that, he like starts a factory and he employs people and then he seems to be a competent contributing member of society. Um, so for that, you know, I'm, I'm fully on board with him doing whatever he has to do short of assaulting people to get out of going back to jail, which is going to do nobody any any good. It's going to completely just make the world a worse place by imprisoning this guy unjustly and taking him out of the, the workforce where he's obviously doing a whole lot of good. So. Sure. Yeah. yeah, and the, the factory scene is, is really compelling to me. Um, I think that a lot of people might watch that and not even, you know, give thought to the fact that here's a here's a capitalist setting up a business and improving the lives of all these people. And and that theme comes up a few a few times throughout the movie. Um, you know, here are all of these women singing about, well, we need this job, this is improving our lives, we're feeding our kids from it. Um, and and here's a, a guy that went out on his own and yeah, he used the say investment in him from from the bishop. To start that business, but you know he's he's creating a business, and in doing so, he's improving the lives of of all of his employees. Um, that of course comes up later when when they falsely identify someone else as Jean Valjean. Um, he struggles with that. Um, do I save the one man or all of my employees? And I think that's a, a pretty compelling internal struggle that he goes through. Can we talk about Anne Hathaway getting fired? Sure. Because I didn't understand why she got fired. It seemed to be that she, there was, she was violated some kind of social norm. <laughs> I think so. At the time, um, she was a single mother that had a child. Um, and at the time, I think that um, that was much more frowned upon than today. I mean, today you see a single mom of two or three working hard and, and she gets praised by, by our culture, by our society. Um, where at that time, you know, it's you had a kid, you're you're done now, you're used. And, and the foreman had a thing for her, clearly. Um, you know, he had goals of making her his own, so to speak. And the fact that she was, uh, you know, he had at that point viewed her as less than desirable because she had been with a man. She had already had a child. And, you know, I think he was uh, definitely not the best of characters in the film. And his simple solution to 
being turned down indirectly was to just throw her out and get rid of her. Yeah, I felt like the situation was that there was a social pressure to not have someone who was an unwed mother because it would bring shame upon the the business or or the rest of the the workers there and also that trouble would follow her because they didn't care why she was a single mother. They didn't care that the husband like had either left or died or whatever. They just treated it as if she was just some kind of a harlot, right? Just some kind of a loose woman who was going to bring all sorts of trouble upon them. And it was unknown that she had this kid, right? And that's why the foreman was trying to move in on her or whatever. And she had played it up as if she was a virgin. And that's why she was uh, rebutting him or rebuking him. And then when it was revealed that she had a child, then they used that as an excuse to kick her out. Right. And I think the other women were almost envious of her in a way that she was getting so much attention from the foreman that they wanted to cut that off um, because they, you know, they wanted to be in favor of the foreman because that would up their standards. So they brought up the fact that, you know, she has this need, she's going to do whatever she needs to do to fulfill that need, which is caring for her child. When everyone there has a need, if, if you're without need, you have no reason to go to work. So she wasn't beneath any of them, but I think you're, you're right there uh, that, you know, they use the social black eye or the social stigma to say, you know, she's, she's desperate. You don't want her on staff. Right. So and the moral... is... Well, I'll go let ahead. you jump in there. Okay. So the moral right. of this story seems to be make friends and be nice to people and endear yourself to people because <laughs> Anne Hathaway didn't have a single person that came up to her for her defense. They were all like, yeah, let's get rid of her. We don't care what the reason is. So, but if she had made some friends, maybe baked some cakes for some friends and gone to some social functions, Maybe somebody would have stuck up for it. I think it's a little more complicated than that, though. I mean, uh, people were definitely ruled by their class and by society then more than now. You, you couldn't be a, a free thinker. You couldn't break out of the box and be a you know, standalone, unique person. You kind of had to fall in line at the time. I mean, these people were living under under monarchy. So they kind of had to, you know, fill the role that they were assigned, um, you know, fall in line or, or fall to the wayside. Yeah, I find it interesting that it's it's very made clear when she is fired that the factory was a far better thing in her life than the alternative. Like the alternative was she was out on the streets. She was selling her hair, selling her teeth, um, you know, be, becoming a prostitute. And she and, fought hard against that for, for as long as she could. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I get it that it's a story, right? And so they're going to be pushing this, you know, emotional narrative. But in a real situation, there would have been other factories, other places of employment to go to, right? Um, I mean, that's why wages don't just go down and down and down. It's because employers are competing for workers. And that's why wages get uh, driven up. You know, this is why the iron law of wages is incorrect. Um, so, I think for the, the convenience of the story, we had to have her get totally broken down into this um, person who's on the street and kind of move things along and, and have Valjean come in and be the savior. But I don't think that that really would have happened um, in a environment where there were alternatives at other factories. It wasn't like this was the only factory in all of France. Well, sure. But I, I think that today that would be much less likely to happen. Um, you know, I didn't live, live through the time. I'm certainly not a historian, but... You know, when you have a, a political elite class that runs all of the industry, um, you know, I, I really think that that serves to limit the other alternatives for people that are working. Um, on top of that, I think you had a lot of social stigma at that time. Um, and on top of that, I mean, this I'm by no means a historian. I, I you know, looked up, uh, know a little bit about the time. It was a very turbulent time in France. I mean, they were, went back and forth from re rebellion to republic to rebellion to, um, I think, the first um, uh 
dictatorship or uh, um, they went back and forth from monarchy to uh, um, empire. You know, um, that was at uh, a very turbulent time that I think um, people just didn't have the freedom to establish themselves um, like Jean Valjean did. I mean, he he got lucky a few times, but he was also a very dedicated, committed person that, you know, went out of his way to improve the lives of people in this town. And I think that's why he became mayor. Yeah. And if we could back up for a little bit, I think that um, Valjean's situation was interesting because even after he was released on parole, they show like this little snippet of him going to various um, places to try to stay, you know, like an inn or places to try to get a job. And he had to show his parole paperwork every time, you know, it was like papers, please. And he kept getting uh, rejected. Uh, so there was this pariah status, this ostracism as a result of him having been a criminal, even though uh, it was just he had stolen some bread and he had been in prison for 19 years. You'd think that his debt to society had been paid, but um, it just shows you how strong ostracism is. And so you, I felt a, a great sense of vindication when he tears up those parole papers and says, you know, screw this. I'm not living this way. Absolutely. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to jump in and change the subject. So if you want to respond to what Daniel said, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I think there's a lot to unpack in that sequence. I mean, you know, at the time he's going through and yeah, everywhere you go, you have to have papers. And that I came up later in the movie, I think once or maybe twice, you know, you have to show your papers, your government papers. And once you're in that system, and I think we see that today, you know, I think the, the box on the on the application, you know, have you been convicted of a federal crime? Yes or no, not please explain. You're just a criminal. You're, you're a felon. Um, and that's what he was to society at that point. When if people really knew him, knew he stole a loaf of bread um, in a moment of desperation to save his sister's starving child, they would have more compassion as human beings. But all they see is, here's a felon. You know, we don't want him around. So that's a failure of the system he's operating in. Um, and I thought that was a powerful story. And then he finally shows up um, at uh, at the church, and for the first time, someone offers him compassion. They offer him, you know, salvation. He says, "I've saved your soul for God." Um, he forgives him immediately. He doesn't care where he came from. And then, even after he steals from him, he backs his story up to the lawmen because he realizes this man just needs a little forgiveness. And um, that ended up changing Valjean's life. And yeah, when he tore up the papers, that, that scene, I mentioned it before, he's laying in front of the altar. Um, <clears throat> I relate to that a lot uh, because, you know, I think the first time I, I had thoughts of morality versus law was when I was being confirmed in church as a child. Um, had a pretty powerful moment, not anywhere close to what he had, but him realizing that I don't owe the legal system any more penance, that I'm going to do my best in front of my God. And that was a big turning point for him. Yeah, I agree. I think that that is a far better. It's more of an individual thing. It's like morality is objective for the most part, you know, and, and people have a subjective situation like in some of the gray areas, but the level of a number of laws that exist, law does not mean morality, right? Law does not make morality. Um, I have a thing I'll put on the show notes page as well that basically outlines how many pages and, and how many links the football field it would take to fill, you know, to, to, actually show all the laws in the United States. It's ridiculous. It's, it's several football fields in length. Um, you know, and, and lawmakers, that's their job is to go and make more and more laws and regulations. And many of them contradictory, many of them uh, totally immoral. <laughs> it's just, uh, it's crazy to think that, that people sit there with a straight face and think that, well, if it's against the law, then it's immoral. And if it's a law, then it must be moral. I, funny aside, I met a state prosecutor at a bar one night. We were talking for a few minutes, and um, she told me she was a lawyer at first, and we were talking, and, and then she told me she was a state prosecutor, and I asked her how she could sleep at night, and <laughs> I don't think she was expecting that response. Were you in the movie Collateral? That's what happened in that movie. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, I was not in the movie Collateral. Um, but if only so in this movie, I just I think it's funny that all the problems in this movie would have been solved by communism. Um, if only France had communism in the early 1800s, then Jean Valjean could have just waited on breadline for a couple hours to get his bread, and then this movie wouldn't have happened. But but um, you know, one of the I don't mean to straw man communism, but I've heard in the past, one of the kind of critiques of capitalism is that you get a situation like this where people are so money hungry that you'll lock a man in jail for stealing a loaf of bread. When in reality, it's capitalism that generates the wealth that allows for there to be such bounty that a guy could just give a guy a loaf of bread. Yeah, sure. You really need it. Go for it. It's not that big a deal. Anyway, it's interesting. I, I agree with you 100%. And I, I think this movie, it's the what I like so much about film is that, well, and sometimes I dislike it, but three different people can watch a movie and get three different things out of it. You know, and I watch it and see, here's a guy that was enslaved for a small crime by the state because the state needed human capital. That state is affecting the situation. It's not capitalism that put Valjean in jail. In fact, he breaks out and capitalism is what saves him. It's what saves the people around him. He, he finds a societal need. He fills that need. And in doing so, everyone that helps him along the way, all the people he employs, uh, their lives improve, as well as, as the peoples in town whose, whose needs are being fulfilled by his activity. Um, and along the entire way, it's, it's you know, um, Javert is trying to slow him down. And an actor of the state is trying to get in his way. Um, and then there's a scene with uh, there's two scenes actually where they pull through town in carriages and these very wealthy people come through. Well, they're not capitalists; they're politically connected people. They they're not producing things like Valjean is. You know, they're sitting at the top using the the very powerful um, monarchical system that's that's employed at the time to better themselves because they're selfish in a way that has state power behind it. They're not selfish in a way that they want to maximize their value, maximize their company's value, and thus fill needs of the people around them. Yeah, that's an interesting observation, and, and I would tend to agree that most of the problems are the result of the state in this uh, particular story. The, the vibe I got, you mentioned that three different people will watch it and see three different things. Uh, I got the vibe that this was actually supportive of the ideas of communism and revolution and the people being um, willing to revolt if there was just a spark and an instigation by the students um, when Lamarck died and that it was um, almost... Uh, how, how do you say this? Like glorifying it, like making it look like a, a noble and, and heroic thing. Yeah, I very much saw the same thing, Daniel. It seemed to me that the student revolution, which had was pointless and aimless except to get people killed, <laughs> was all for freedom, but they had no plan, no aim, no goal. Just this generic idea of, well, we're just going to kill some soldiers and fight for freedom. Well, what's it going to achieve? Well, we don't know. We're gonna we're gonna barricade this area of a of a road what's that going to achieve oh we don't know it's going to do something probably viva la revolution uh, it seemed to be make no sense well they were trying to to get the people to rise up they wanted to be that spark so they thought if they were resisting the existing government then the people in general would then rise up in response okay so but why not just revolution why not just ignore them they don't have any hostages. They haven't taken any significant territory. They're just hanging out in their homes, essentially, except they blockade one street. Well, go to a different street. Because ideas are dangerous, Robert. Not <laughs> A couple of angry <laughs> college kids? I don't know. There's a whole bunch of angry college kids these days, and I mostly just ignore them. 
Well, sure. But they're motivated by the same things that those people are. I mean, there's a lot of things about that angry mob that I very much dislike, but I think uh, there's a lot that I can relate to. Um, they're fighting against what they view as their oppressor. Um, and we see that even today. I mean, now we've mastered it. I mean, these people are fighting cholera and starvation. They have something real to fight against. Today, you see people being motivated by politics um, to fight against their quote unquote oppressors. Like, are you really being oppressed? No, but they feel that they are. And like today in, in presidential elections, even people feel I'm fighting it for a, for a change. I'm fighting for a, a revolution when it's not a real revolution. And, you know, going back to, to these folks, they were fighting against one aspect of something in their life they didn't like, but they didn't have a grand scheme of this is what we want. We just don't want this anymore. Give me something else. And then at that time in France, right. I mean, there was many revolutions and political voids. And, you know, they, you take the shit out, more shit comes back in. Uh, pardon my French, but um, they were kind of- what you did there. They were they were aimlessly fighting for something different, not knowing what it was. And, now, Alex, yeah, I, it's yeah. What's that? Merde, yes, correct. Yeah, for French. <laughs> right. right. Bad jokes aside, uh, continue for. for <laughs> no, I, I I struggle with that scene too. I, I think um, more so in the recent years that I've watched the film. Um, like these people don't know what the hell they're doing, but they know that they're fighting against something, and that's such a strong motivator for people. And yes, they really had aimless ends, but they knew that they were fighting against something that was actually bad for them. Um, right. They remind me of just like today's protesters who were just angry about something. They're not exactly. exactly sure what, but they are angry. I'm with you there. Yeah. Yeah, and it doesn't matter like what the um, idea that they're angry about is. It's the person who exemplifies whatever they're angry about because the, the next person who's in uh, in in line for the presidency or whatever they can do the exact same thing and if it's their team they're totally fine with it we saw this with bush to, to obama and obama to trump you know basically the same policies are in place and the left is outraged when it's bush doing it it's fine when obama's doing it and he gave trump basically carte blanche to do the things so now people aren't upset about trump doing the things that obama did they're upset about him like saying mean things or tweeting Right. And you didn't see a whole bunch of like right wing protests all the time during Obama. Just didn't quite happen. Well, that would be racist. <laughs> Can we talk about, OK, before we really get into this or after we get into this, whatever. I mean, we're probably already running out of time. This is crazy. There's so much to talk about in this movie. But the one most unrealistic thing that I saw in this film is the innkeeper that this place is even in business. <laughs> so as soon as like a customer comes in they're robbing the guy they're shaking the guy down the guy doesn't even know he's been robbed then they're feeding him like people parts and rat feces and all kinds of garbage and even if even if the guy doesn't see anybody steal from him like he walks into his inn and he gets robbed and he's like oh wait i got robbed even if he doesn't know who did it he's still gonna go oh, i'm probably not gonna go back to that place again i'm gonna tell everybody i know that i got robbed there I just can't see. And then, and you know, later on in the movie, the, the proprietors are like living in the sewer or something or just they're robbing people on the street or whatever. But the fact that they even have a in in the beginning of the movie, I call BS on. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea how they came to uh, such means, but I, I can definitely see how they lost such means. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I guess there wasn't it's, a, it's a fun a scene. There was, don't get me wrong. It's a fun scene of them like robbing everybody and like master of the house and that kind of thing. And I, there's a whole bunch of cultural like Things I'd seen, like the Master of the House and the I Dreamed a Dream and a couple other songs that I recognized, like just in the culture. So this is obviously like some kind of like famous cultural movie. It was fun to actually see that for the first time. Yeah. So to me, the innkeepers were they were probably the least interesting, had the 
worst character arc of any of the developmental arc of any of the characters. Uh, but they served one purpose in the movie, which was at the very end, uh, basically. Um, but what I did like in, was the development between Eponine, their natural daughter, and Cosette. You know, Cosette was kind of kept down. She was basically a child slave. Um, and they treated her daughter very well. And that completely reversed when they met again as adults. And it was interesting to see, you know, the lifestyle that Cosette eventually found herself in, a, an honorable man. Um, she was raised well, and, and now she's, you know, of means. And Eponine, she was raised in this environment of theft, uh, complete lack of moral, moral character. And here she is on the streets, basically running petty crimes to, to get by day by day. Um, you know, I, I thought that that was interesting. You know, they set it up early and then brought it back home later on. Um, my least favorite part about this movie is the Castle on the Cloud song to me. And I remind me that, which one that one is. That was Cosette in the innkeeper uh, before she goes out to um, fetch the water from the wood. She sings a song about a castle on the cloud. And I understand why you'd forget it because they completely ruined it in the film. It's a beautiful song. Um, I've seen it multiple other times and. It's one of my favorite songs in the, the production, and they completely ruined it in this film. I was going to ask you, if since you had recommended this, that if you were more familiar with the source material, and I was curious about how well this translated. Um, so, well, the source material is a book that was written, I think, 40 or 50 years after the revolution. Um, not one book. It was like a series, seven or eight books. It's thousands of pages long that... Um, I think I read something that no one would ever read it. I've since found out that one of my friends actually read it when she was a, a kid, which is insane. Um, but yeah, it was a, a very long book that was adapted into uh, theater and then eventually into several movies. It was uh, Victor Hugo, right? Victor Hugo? Is that right? Uh, that sound, sounds right. Yeah, it is Victor Hugo. And there were um, movies made as far back as the 1930s. And the Broadway production, I believe, started in the late 70s or early 80s. And it ran for something like 15 or 25 years um, on Broadway. And then it's no longer on Broadway, but I'm sure they're still doing productions, you know, oh. various places. Uh, wh oh. Where have you seen it? Did you go uh, to New York? No, no, that would be awesome. Um, I saw it in Ohio a couple times um, on stage. And then, um, uh, yeah, there's a lot of theater where I grew up. Um, How long so, is it in a play form? I'm curious because you got all those acts and you got the, the curtains going up and down and changing probably, the sets. The intermission. It's got to yeah, be like a six hour marathon. Probably about as long. But the interesting thing when you go from a stage production to a movie production, Robert, you probably hate the stage production because it's actually more music and less conversation than in a movie. Oh, God. Uh, that's a general. My, my general observation is when musicals go to film, they add more dialogue. They add more um, visual scenes where on a stage you kind of have to you have to force the viewer to use their imagination for certain aspects of the production. Right. And you'd um, have no uh, <laughs> no subtitles, Robert. No subtitles, Robert. <laughs> Be like going to the opera for me. What are they talking about? I don't know. But yeah, so I saw a pretty small stage production of it um, in Dayton, Ohio, in fact, um, where uh, Javert jumping off the bridge, they did it amazingly on a very small stage, very low budget, you know, and they didn't have, you know, obviously on film, they, they could do a lot more with it, um, actually showing falling and kind of brutally breaking on, on the, uh, uh, whatever that is, the dock, it's not a dock, but um, it was where the movie started, by the way. Uh, he jumped off the bridge and fell into where they were pulling ships in after the battle, uh, the revolution some nine years earlier, or however many years earlier it was. Um, oh, okay. So that's like, is that like a ship lock? Is that what that is? The lock yeah, I think or? that's where the large ships, they pulled in and, you know, they could raise or lower the water level to Work on bring the boats up. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I got to say that opening scene with the ships and everything. I know it's like 90% CGI. It was pretty amazing. Like yeah. some really great visuals there. I think uh, Tom Hooper's known for having these uh, very move, a lot of movement in his shots and a lot of spectacle mm -hmm. in his framing and a lot of jostling too. And uh, just uh, 
my little cheap move, Robert, was I watched this um, via YouTube at 1.5 speed with the Oh, words. you son of a bitch cheater. Screw <laughs> you. With the words on. And so it was almost like they were talking, you know, because it was, it was almost like normal speech uh, cadence. And then we could see the words and, you know, it was a little sing-songy. But we got through this thing in like under two hours. So <laughs> I'll have uh, my revenge. You're, you're a cheater. It'll be fine. I'll, I'll get my revenge. You will know pain. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. But uh, anyway, yeah, it was, uh, I thought it was a beautiful, beautifully shot film uh, and great uh, kind of presentation. But it did also did feel very stagey in a way. Like you could tell that they were trying to sort of, I don't know, show that in, in their presentation. Like, hey, this is a theater show, but we're just adding a bunch of CGI around it. Sure. One thing I appreciate about, appreciate about that, too, I mean, there was a time when culture was disseminated through the stage, the theater, and generally only the wealthy people could could consume that that culture. And, you know, a lot of people today turn their nose up at film productions of, of theater. Um, but in actuality, what that is, is, you know, there's a company that realizes I can disseminate this to masses and, and make a lot of money. But the result of that is more people get to consume that that culture, that part of our culture. Um, and that's kind of why I thought the 2012 version would be good was that it was more contemporary. Maybe some of your listeners would relate to it more than like a 60s version. Yeah, I'm yeah, curious I, what the 1999 uh, version with Jeffrey Rush would have been like, because I don't believe that one was a musical. Oh, really? I'd have to check that out. So I assume the Broadway version is a musical then, but obviously the... Um... The original text, I assume, doesn't have like music lyrics and that sort of thing. It's all just written out like a story, I would suppose. I think it was a much more complicated story being however many thousands of pages long it was. Um, probably a little more gruesome at times and, uh, you know, real. But I haven't read any of it, so I don't really know. Well, that's good. What did you think of the uh, the acting and all that, Alex? Um, in general, I think it was um, generally good. I, I think Hugh Jackman is one of the better actors of our time. Uh, you know, a guy that can go from shooting knives out of his hands and slicing people up to, you know, parting his hair and singing Broadway musicals on, on uh, film. I think he's, he's pretty impressive. Uh, Russell Crowe, I thought, did a good job. Um, I think his, his villain character was had more depth to it than you see in other villains, um, maybe of contemporary film. Um, you know, he... He was pretty consistent, but you got to know him throughout the film more deeply. Uh, you know, that scene where uh, after Fantine dies and they have the sword fight and he, he says, yeah, you know, such and such, I'm from the gutter too, before Jean, or before Jean Valjean jumps out of the window. Um, so you learn a little bit more and more about him through throughout the film um, up until the moment when he can't take any more forgiveness from this man that he's condemned so deeply in his soul. And he's he's so torn about it, he can't live with himself. And I think uh, back to your early point, Robert, they kind of use some of the same music when he's walking across the dam uh, that they used in Jean Valjean's scene when he's realizing his forgiveness from God. So that kind of draws your attention back to uh, Valjean's salvation and Javert's realization of his maybe undeserved forgiveness. Um, and they handle it such different ways. Valjean goes off and starts a great life and, you know, um, goes out and becomes a capitalist and, and improves the lives of people. Javert jumps off a freaking bridge. You know, he just can't live with, with his life being turned upside down in that way. Yeah, I really did appreciate the turn of Javert. I, I, but I didn't, I still don't understand. I mean, maybe it was lost in translation or maybe I wasn't paying close enough attention, but I really didn't understand the tenacity with which Javert went after Jean Valjean. I, I kind of lost that. But I do, I do appreciate the humanizing aspects, the human aspects of Javert. He was a fully rounded character. I did appreciate that. He had a nice, nice arc. 
And he, he was, so him and Valjean were driven by basically the same things. Um, they both were very religious men. Uh, Javert saw his duty to God to enforce the laws of man. And he was so committed to that. And, and Valjean, he saw his duty to God to improve those around the lives of those around him. And he did that throughout the movie. And I, but Jean Valjean's that, crimes compared to the innkeeper's crimes, it's not even close, man. I'm not siding with Valjean's imprisonment at all. <laughs> not, not in the I mean, Javert, you got crooks just standing right in front of your face. Arrest those guys. Well, right. I think he's more driven by the fact that he escaped him, you know, kind of getting his own revenge. And he even said that when, when Valjean didn't kill him. He said, you know, he could have got his revenge right then. He had the knife. He had the gun. Um, he's more of a, he's a vengeful person. He lives his life that way. And, and they both live their lives under the same book, under the same text, the Bible. They just interpret it very differently. And I think that points to some very as interesting aspects of our current culture. People do horrific things under the name of the Bible. And they also do wonderful things under the name of the Bible. You know, if I could take us back to the, the innkeeper couple doing all these uh, heinous crimes, basically continuously for years. Um, but if you've got this society where stealing bread is going to get you five years in prison, you'd think that that would be a pretty strong deterrent, right? That, that appealing to this law of man uh, with this kind of harsh punishment would make people reticent to do uh, these types of criminal activities, yet they flaunt it. And it's amazing that they never got caught uh, even till the end. I mean, sure, they lost their business probably because, you know, this whatever this 1832 version of Yelp was, their reviews uh, got out there and they were very low. So they lost their in, but they still never got arrested and never got imprisoned themselves for crimes that were far, far worse than what Valjean ever did. And so I, I if, if the, the theory of the, you know, law and punishment, you know, criminal uh, aspect is a deterrence theory, uh, it didn't really shine through in this. It didn't seem that the harsh punishments was much of a deterrence for the innkeeper couple. I would agree with you. And I would also advocate that, uh, you know, that system is unjust in the same way that our current legal system is unjust. Making it illegal does not make it immoral and it doesn't prevent people from committing the act. You know, the, the innkeepers ended up on the street. You know, that's real justice. They, they live immoral lives. And I assume to your point, Robert, people probably did stop going to them because they were being robbed. You know, how else did they lose their, their livelihoods? There is one thing that uh, Borat said or, or Ali G said. <laughs> and Borat, let's was... stick with that. That was when uh, uh, the innkeeper was caught by um, Valjean. No, by Messina Javert. And Valjean escapes or leaves the scene of the crime, and he was the victim of the crime. And so Perrier uh, says, uh, In the absence of the victim, may I go? And, you know, basically, no victim, no crime, uh, which is a modern day thing that I, I would advocate for. Um, and I, I want to harp on that for a moment, bring it up, because I think that it's a, it's a very important point. Absolutely. We can harp on that all you want, because I love to harp on that myself. The state often brings people in for victimless crimes and claims that, you know, the, the person withstanding or the, the victim is the state itself, which is hilarious. <laughs> like, what do you mean? An idea is the victim? Because that's all the state is. It's an idea. It's a concept. It's, it doesn't actually exist. It's and it's not even a good concept. But in order to have standing, you have to show damages against, you know, somebody who owns some property. But yeah, a concept can't own property. A concept can't get hurt and damaged and destroyed. It's ridiculous. I'm with you. Yeah. And going back to your point about the wrongful imprisonment, like Valjean committed a crime. He stole a loaf of bread. 19 years is not a just punishment for that. He should probably pay for the loaf of bread somehow or sweep the floors long enough to pay for the loaf of bread. That would be a real justice. But yeah, absolutely. No victim, no crime. I mean, right. You know, or go or... 
yeah, ask what the uh, the shop owner, the bread owner, what he wants, what he thinks is just punishment. Right. Yeah, it's another thing. It's a very great point, Robert. Much of uh, criminal justice in the United States and, and in the world today isn't restitution for the victims of the crime. There's no um, recompense for them. It's about meeting out punishment for the accused, for the for the quote unquote criminal. Yeah, even if there is a victim. But Daniel, if you don't pay your taxes, you've basically stolen from the, the beneficiaries of those taxes. <laughs> you thieving bastard. He's oh. a terrible person. I've been saying this all along. Well, you know, just for the record, I do pay the taxes demanded of me. I don't want to say they're my taxes because I don't have really much of a choice in them. Though this is an interesting point. Um, a friend of ours, a friend of the show has been a, a guest a few times, had a comment on uh, Facebook the other day. Uh, speaking about taxes, and somebody replied and said, well, you're choosing it so it's consensual. And everyone was telling him, no, there's a gun to your head. You know, a, a rape victim who has a knife to their ribs isn't consenting to being raped by choosing between being murdered or raped. You, you know what I'm saying? Like he's, he's conflating the act of making a choice out of two bad decisions where you're, the morality of it is totally removed from that decision, right? Uh, and, and making that equate to consensual right know. and everyone sees that when you talk about the rape victim but um you, i don't know how you break through that wall when when you're talking about something such as the state that people are so conditioned to deem necessary it's just uh that's a tall task i've noticed in my life it is anyway. there's massive amounts of conditioning yeah. it's it's tough nut to crack all right so i have i have one more point and then we can get into some uh, final summaries and reviews uh, or or any last points that uh, alex you have or robert but mine goes back to the revolution, the red and black, you know, their song with um, Lamarck who dies of cholera. And they use that as their time to strike. And I viewed, um, they said that Lamarck was a man of the people. He was a bureaucrat for the people. And I likened that to a modern day or our modern day Bernie Sanders. Right. And that, and that ties right in line with my, uh, my ideation that, that this was a socialist revolution that they were trying to spark and it just never took root. And I think that the reason it never took root is because uh, by this time in France, there were factories, despite all of the, the monarchy and the privilege of only the, uh, the ones who are bestowed, you know, basically monopoly protections were allowed to have factories, that the lives of the people were in fact improved versus the alternative in, in, in prior in their history. And so they weren't uh, as bad off as they would have been. And so they were not necessarily primed to do a revolution. Like that inevitability of Marx's revolution, the proletariat rising up against the bourgeois because of the iron law of wages and they would get further and further uh, oppressed uh, and that they only get subsistence wages and then somehow wages are supposed to go down. So how would that even work? Because it's a non-starter. Like if they're already at subsistence and if they went down, then wouldn't they all be dead? Anyway, um, I viewed that this, basically the whole movie is about um, uh, praising the socialist revolution that never came because the people were better off as a result of capitalism and the factory system. Yeah, I tend to agree with you, sir. Um, yeah, I, I don't know exactly the nature of the uh, the communist revolution in Russia. That's the nature. I mean, they had just had World War One, which had brutalized you know, slaughtered a whole bunch of their people. And I, I'm not exactly sure all if they were really industrialized, but I think they were fairly pre-industrial at the time. So that would kind of lend to your argument as to, um, you know, allowing a socialist revolution to really take hold. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that it was a very fairly agrarian society um, prior to that. And that one of the first things that they tried to do after the revolution was to rapidly industrialize. Right. Like Stalin's five-year plan or whatever it was. Well, it was Lenin first and then Stalin. Yeah. 
But go ahead, Alex, you're about to chime in. No, I, I guess um, I thought less about communism uh, <clears throat> in watching those scenes that I think you're referring to and more about uh, the current day yellow jacket, quote unquote, revolution where they're, you know, gathered in the streets and, and bringing out the guillotines for a gas tax. And But they're not really fighting for less state intervention. They, their list of demands is incredibly socialist. And it's just such a misguided use of rebellion, I think. And, and I agree that, you know, the, the masses that we saw in this film um, were, were probably representative of the time. They were misguided. They, they were fighting against something they disliked, but give me, keep giving me more free stuff, right? Um, they, they want less, less free stuff for them, more free stuff for me. That's, that's what, you know, the Bernies that you're talking about, they're very efficient at selling that concept to, uh, to voters today. Yeah. The um, politics of envy for sure. Right. Yeah. 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 They, they, do a good job of exploiting, you know, perceived injustice because the youth have a lot of energy and they have a lot of anger and they have a lot of righteousness and righteous fury and they can be directed, you know, in, in certain directions. But as far as, you know, they, they, they stroke, they struck me as, you know, bureaucrats waiting to happen. Like they are just wanting their turn at the levers of power and in order to grant themselves other people's stuff. Well, what, what would you rather sell? If you were a salesman selling two things, take down the rich people and then we all have more or take down the rich people and then we can live independently. And then we have to keep fighting for ourselves at that point rather than versus someone. You know, the, the individualism, the, the freedom, uh, liberty aspect is, is a much harder sell because you're telling people we have to get the oppressors out of the way and then continue fighting to be self-sufficient, you know, stand on your own. Right. I mean, because there's this view who have a lot have gained it unjustly and that they want to right the wrong. Like people like Ocasio-Cortez, who says that, you know, all, not all billionaires are immoral, but essentially all billionaires are immoral. You can't be a moral billionaire because if, you know, you provide that much value, you must have been doing something wrong. And yeah, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of, a lot of people do, you know, they, they interact with government. They, you know, they push at the levers of power. They have lobbyists, but those are kind of the rules of the game. We've talked about this quite a bit on this podcast. You know, it's not the most moral thing to do, but when, you know, every dollar of lobbyist you put into lobbyists buys you, you know, $2 worth of value, it's hard to say to your investors and your shareholders, no, we're not going to do that. It's tough. It's tough to be a moral business person and, and you know, and try and operate outside. It's, try to, it's hard to gulch, gulch it, you know, in this in this world. It just, it really is. Yeah, the, the deck is certainly stacked against you in this paradigm, which is rather unfortunate because if, if the free market were allowed to be unleashed, then everyone's standard of living would raise significantly and uh, everyone would be better off. It'd be an amazing thing. There'd be so much untapped potential out there in the world that uh, who knows where we'd be today. It, it, it would be incredible. It's, That's it's a very message, you know? Sure. You know, just in the recent weeks, you hear people politicians clamoring for, uh, you know, political campaign finance reform. They don't want political campaign finance reform. That's how they get paid. They want to hide it. They're playing a shell game. If you want a real political campaign finance reform, get the power out of politics, the money will follow. That, you know, to me, that's the only solution. Not, let's pass a law to make the other laws work better. It's not, you know, not, not the way out of this mess. Yeah, there's not enough laws, right, Alex? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have a, that, that picture. That We're just one law away from law. utopia. That's right. Just one more. Just one more. All right. Well, it's about that time. So let's get into our final summary and reviews. Uh, Alex, I know that you are uh, a listener of the show, so you know how this works. Uh, we'll ask you to give a, the summary review and then a score out of 10 a decimal point deep, please. Sure. Um, 
like I said, I'm a big fan of this story. I knew it before I saw the film. Um, I thought that they did a really good job with it. The cinematography was great. I thought the um, the music was well composed. Um, I I thought that it did advance the plot line. Uh, but again, I you know came in, into it with an understanding of the film. Uh, the general story, I think Valjean is probably one of the best uh, heroes that that exists in um, in this type of film. Um, he's just he's driven by principle. He's he's guided by his his morality. Um, he he separates the law from that morality. He improves the the lives of everyone he crosses. Um, you know his his antagonist uh, Javert. I, I I enjoyed his character. You know I I didn't like him, but I I, I enjoyed how they introduced him over time. Um, you know, I thought the story was strong. It was it was a man that climbed out of out of despair and built a better world, not only for himself but but everyone around him. Um, I thought his relationship with Cosette was um, maybe a little underdeveloped in this film version, but she played an integral role in in um, sort of the transition from the first half of the movie to the second half. Which, for me, I I can watch the first half and stop and not even finish the movie. Like to me, uh, Jean Valjean's development is is what I watch the movie for. And for that alone, I, I just, it's one of my, uh, definitely one of my top musicals. I don't know if I'd say top movies, but, um, so if I had to rate it, um, after, after last week, I thought about just rating it like 16 to really just break that glass ceiling that you guys have been <laughs> working on, but I'm not going to do that. Um, I'd say probably 9.5. Um, and the reason that I would knock it down, um, half a point was, was the, I thought Cosette was a little under, underdeveloped in the, in the film and, uh, yeah, they ruined Castellano crowd. All right, very good. Well, thank you for that, Alex. Uh, I'll I'll take a turn, and then we'll go to Robert. So I felt like that this movie might have been a little bit. Uh, you used the word underdeveloped for Cosette. I think that some of the transition points were a bit underdeveloped, and I got a little bit lost in the timeline. Like they did mention that you know eight years later, nine years later, a couple of times, but like right after the the failed revolution, the student revolution, then all of a sudden. Um, we got uh, Wolverine like dying at the monastery. Wasn't that, you know, a few years later because he had just done some heroic, you know, strength stuff. And then all of a sudden he's this like battered old man. So I got a little bit lost there. And then some of the, some of the moments that I think were super important to the story, I don't think they were very emphasized in this iteration of it. And I feel like maybe one of the other films, one of the other film adaptations or perhaps reading the novel might have a little bit more impact. Um, but the visuals were stunning and I felt that uh, this was a well done movie. And I did read a little bit in the background and uh, uh, Logan did lose i think 60 or more pounds to do his um imprisonment scene so he was very very gaunt very thin he would go for runs every day for 45 minutes on an empty stomach and then only eat like i don't know a few hundred calories or something crazy and he was also working with a voice coach every day to get his singing range uh, expanded because i guess he was a baritone and he needed to sing tenor for this so his dedication to the role um i think did pay dividends. I think that he did a great job. Um, I found that Russell Crowe's performance, he's like the same in every movie. So you put Russell Crowe in and his voice, even though he's singing, kind of just sounds like it's Russell Crowe, but a little sing-songy. I mean, I like him, but it didn't really stand out for me. So I don't know. I'm going to go with like a 7.1 on this. I, I did appreciate that you recommended it. I think it had a lot of really interesting things worth talking about. And uh, so I might actually go and check out the Jeffrey Ruff, Rush version just to get another angle on the story and without as much singing and uh, see see what I think of it from that point. I, I can tell you I'm not going to read a, a 
several thousand page um, novel version of it. Uh, I've got too many books <laughs> to read as it is. But uh, let's go to Robert and then we will wind down the show here. Well, those are some two very good takes. I just got done watching this film, so this is a bit of a hot take. So forgive me if it's not the most in-depth. But um, like I said throughout the this episode, um, this movie wasn't really made for Robert. I, I enjoyed it for what what it was and I'm glad it exists and it's definitely made for somebody just just not necessarily for me um, this is obviously a high quality production though uh, it attracted a whole lot of excellent talent from the production from the director the actors um, I would echo Daniel's sentiments on the actors uh, Crow who I found the best character I liked his arc the most I really enjoyed his going from this passionate guy to a guy who kills himself at the end because he's been forgiven by Valjean is a really powerful sentiment, but the acting of Jackman is uh, just fantastic. And his dedication to the role, like you were saying is amazing. Um, but for me, this movie comes down to the story of Jean Valjean and I can appreciate Alex's take on it. Um, for him, it's more about him being this fantastic character. Um, for me, I wanted Valjean to have more motivation. Um, I, 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 I love his fight against the state and his, moral character of recognizing that my morality trumps your dumb laws. I, I yeah, that's what I'm all about. <laughs> this, this is what the whole podcast is about. That's fantastic. But I wanted, um, I wanted more of an arc from him. I didn't want him to just be the Superman the whole time. I wanted him to be a really flawed character at the beginning. And I didn't see any of that. I wanted some kind of redemption. I wanted, I don't know. I wanted him to actually do something really, really bad and then kind of have to atone and kind of move beyond it instead of just being this great guy the whole time. So I can, but I appreciate that everybody gets different things out of this film. It's definitely a, a complex work and it seems to be able to be adapted in multiple ways. It, uh, it's obviously a story that stood the test of time, but this particular iteration of it just wasn't, wasn't for me. So I'm going to actually give it a negative review and I probably shouldn't. This is, it's kind of terrible for me to say this, but I'm going to give it like a four and a half. It's, it's not, it's not a four and a half movie, but for Robert, it's a four and a half movie, if that makes any sense. So okay. for anybody else, I'm sure you're going to like it more than I did. And, you know, good on you for, for, for enjoying it. Because it is, it is a quality production. And I'm glad we had this discussion. Thank you, Alex, for coming on the show and talking about it and uh, getting in all these interesting points. I appreciate the invite. And I was bracing myself for you to go negative as a negative zero. <laughs> Below zero. <laughs> No, it's, it's 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 a good movie. It's it's good. Well, it's it's a high quality production. I'll put it that way. But it's just uh, I think I think Susan Boyle's rendition of "I Dreamed a Dream" is is better than Hannah Hathaway's. By the way. Oh, now I'm gonna have to post that in the show notes. All right, Susan it's a Mar great clip. <laughs> All right, that sounds good. Well, Alex, again, thank you very much. Uh, we did uh, really have a, a, a fun time talking about this with you, and and we appreciate you being a listener and recommending it and and being a guest. And uh, Robert, um, I'm, I'm going to change the tone here as we're winding this down. Um, so we mentioned the GoFundMe for our Patreon supporter, Joe. So if you want to support him in any way, you can go to lastnighters.com slash Joe, and that will go to his GoFundMe as he fights against cancer. Um, and then our next movie, oh man, this is going to get real sad, uh, is another GoFundMe related thing because um, a friend of ours uh, who does Liberto Libertopia cartoons, and he went by the name Louis Lieberman, uh, 
has died recently. He, he passed away leaving a wife and son, and uh, he was uh, my age. So it's very sudden and very sad. And uh, he was a guest uh, with us a couple of shows on Ghostbusters and Equilibrium. And we had planned on having him back to do Brazil, uh, the Terry Gilliam movie. I believe that's the director of it. And so next week, Robert, I think I would like to do that in tribute to Lewis. And we will do a um, a link at uh, lastnighters.com slash Lewis, L-E-W-I-S. And that will go to the GoFundMe if you would like to support his wife and family um, in uh, you know going through this difficult time. Absolutely. Uh, let's do it. Well, hopefully our, our episode will you know, do justice to his memory because he was a great guest and he will be missed. Yeah. And I, I actually do have some of his uh, commentary as he was suggesting and being excited about doing this. So I will be able to talk about what his, his uh, take was on the movie uh, a little bit. So we will be back next week with Brazil. Uh, so um, thank you guys for joining us for this episode. Thank you, Alex. Uh, sorry to end it on such a downer here. Uh, this has been the Last Nighters episode 58, and you can find this on the Launchpad Media, where they're always launching new ideas in your direction. And uh, I will say good night from last night, everybody. All right, and we'll continue for a few more minutes on the Actual Anarchy podcast. And it uh, looks like Robert actually left for a moment, so maybe he'll chime back in. I don't know. But uh, Alex, thank you. Oh, there he is. There he is. So, uh, Alex, thanks again for, for being a guest for us. And uh, I, I had debated on whether to bring up that situation um, at the beginning of the episode or at the end. And I'm glad I waited until the end because it is uh, very sad. And I felt like it might have um, changed the tone of the conversation. Sure. Uh, so, um, yeah, anyway. We're still recording right now. <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, why don't we uh, get into some Kathleen Turner Overdrive uh, sure. for our Patreon supporters. And, and if people want to get a hold of that, then go to actualanarchy.com slash Patreon. We will also have the GoFundMes for Joe and for Lewis uh, under the Actual Anarchy um, domain. So actualanarchy.com slash Joe, J-O-E, and actualanarchy.com slash Lewis, L-E-W-I-S. Those will go to both of their GoFundMes. And this has been... Episode 115 of the Actual Anarchy Podcast. We're going to get into some Kathleen Turner Overdrive with our guest, Alex, uh, as we were discussing Les Miserables. So thank you, everyone, and good night. In the early days of the internet, radical libertarians were scattered, lonely, and faceless. Without direction, they resigned to scour the web, sifting through content providers in a wasteland plagued by YouTube demonetization, Facebook jail, and covert internet censorship. But then, in 2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com. The Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the Chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do, do. Do 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 do.
ゅゅゅゅゅゅゅゅゅゅゅゅゅゅゅゅゅゅゅゅゅゅゅゅゅゅゅゅゅゅゅゅゅゅゅゅゅゅゅゅゅゅゅゅゅゅゅゅゅゅ